Welcome to Required Listening. I'm your host, Scott Goldman, the executive director of the Grammy Museum. Every week in the Clive Davis Theater, I have the particular privilege of talking to great music artists about their inspirations, their motivations, what goes in to making great music. On today's episode, three of the most prominent names in music over the last half century, Clive Davis, Kenny Babyface Edmonds, and Johnny Mathis. Now, they were brought together by Clive Davis to produce and record a new album by Johnny Mathis entitled Johnny Mathis Sings the Great New American Songbook. Think songs like Bruno Mars' Just the Way You Are or Leonard Cohen's classic Hallelujah. The album was produced by Kenny Edmonds and the songs were interpreted by Johnny Mathis. But let's consider these three gentlemen. The list of artists whose careers Davis has shepherded reads like a modern history of the music business. Janis Joplin, Sly Stone, The Grateful Dead, Aretha Franklin, Billy Joel, Alicia Keys, Bruce Springsteen, Barry Manilow, Lou Reed, Patti Smith, Carly Simon, and of course, Whitney Houston. And I might add that he's the namesake of our theater at the Grammy Museum. Now, Kenny Edmonds has won 11 Grammy Awards and written, get this, an incredible 47 top 10 hits. And of course, Johnny Mathis, whose greatest hits collection spent an incredible 491 consecutive weeks on the Billboard Top 100. Our discussion ranged from song choices to production decisions and how an artist like Mathis seems so completely grateful after decades in music for the opportunity to work with these incredible collaborators. Now, Clive doesn't miss a beat in finding every opportunity to encourage the audience's appreciation for his artist and the song choices that they made. So let's go to the Clive Davis Theater and listen to my conversation with Clive Davis, Babyface, and Johnny Mathis. So allow me to make a couple of very special introductions here. First, a gentleman whose career credits include 11 Grammy Awards, an incredible 47 top 10 Hot 100 hits. He's worked with artists from Boys to Men to Celine Dion, Aretha Franklin to Mariah Carey, Mary J. Blige to Tony Braxton, TLC, Usher and Outkast, just to name a few. He was recently inducted and rightfully so, into the Songwriters Hall of Fame. Ladies and gentlemen, the producer of Johnny Mathis Sings, the great new American songbook, Kenny Babyface Edmonds. Right there. Thank you for being here. Thank you. Good to be now, here. Now, an artist whose six-decade career has been marked by sales and artistic success without compare. Over 60 albums to reach the Billboard charts, a dozen achieving gold or platinum status. Songs such as Chances Are or Misty that have truly become part of our shared musical DNA. He is a five-time Grammy nominee and in 2003, a recipient of the Grammy Lifetime Achievement Award. Would you please welcome Johnny Mathis. Bless your heart. <laughs> it's strange, you know. 
listening to yourself with other people listening at the same you don't know whether to cringe or go <laughs> oh don't no, listen to that part <laughs> thank what you so much for being uh, oh, so nice to me thank you this is this it. is an honor for us so I'm, I'm riffing off of that what do you hear when you listen to yourself do you hear the beauty of it do you hear specific parts do you hear the mistakes <laughs> you know what i hear uh, different things at different times the, some of the songs, for instance, over the years that I recorded for, with Percy Faith, uh, religious songs, uh, the Kol Nidre, Eli, and things of that nature, and I hear the words. Uh, melody has to be there, but when I listen to this, I <laughs> want to thank Babyface here. I hear so many wonderful... So many wonderful things that, that I'm not capable of doing, uh, but I was so happy to be a part of this project, and uh, I am just very grateful to, uh, to be on the stage, not only with, with Baby Face, but with Clive Davis. Uh, I wanted to say something about the fact that uh, when I first came to Columbia Records, uh, I never really met anybody, uh, hierarchy people. Uh, I never knew whether they ever listened to me. But with Clive, it was wonderful because he introduced me to Tommy Bell. And Tommy Bell wrote all these wonderful songs for the stylistics and what have you. And I was in love with all those songs. At that moment in time, uh, you'll never know what it's like to be a singer. And you hear all these songs and you can't wait to get in to record them. So I got a chance to work with Tommy. And um, Clive has been on my side, as he mentioned earlier, I've sung from him for him on so many occasions, and just a joy to be on the same stage. We're still here, Claude. Mm. We're still here. So, indeed. So, I'm very interested in this relationship. The producer-artist relationship, you know, oftentimes can make or break the sound of a track or an album. Um, Babyface, first of all, tell me, tell me the the first time you remember hearing Johnny Mathis. Johnny is Christmas to me. I mean, when yeah. Christmas isn't Christmas unless until you hear Johnny sing. That that's when it's officially Christmas. And, yeah. um, <laughs> it's, it's not until you until that happens. And it, um, so, and I, I go all the way back to when hearing "Chances Are," and it, that was like really, it's like the voice of an angel. It's like mm -hmm. you know, who is this? <laughs> Why is this? It's like, and it was, it, it just blew me away from years ago. So to finally be able to actually go in a studio, it was no, nothing that I ever expected would happen in my life. And then Clive calls me and says, hey, I got an idea for you. Get it. So here you are working. Now I'm going to talk, talk about you in the third person, and I apologize for that. Um, um, so here you are working with someone that you've been listening to since since you were a kid. Yeah. Um, an iconic, legendary voice. A little bit of pressure going on there? Yeah, a lot of pressure. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but but I felt I felt safe in the, uh, in the hands with Clive and and the couple other guys that were on the, uh, Jay Landers and John Delp. They were they were everybody was all teaming up and they were making sure we would not go the wrong way. We were gonna make sure that we did it the right way. Yeah. I, I couldn't mess this one up because this was, you know, it's Johnny. Yeah. Tell me about tell me about some of the discussions and Clive, you know, feel free to jump in here. In terms of making 
the song choices. As Clive said, um, you know, very, very much intent on creating new standards, you know, if, yeah. if you will. Tell me about the discussions about, about making the, the, the song choices. I'll let Clive start with that. Well, the truth is when you work, you know, with someone like Kenny Edmonds, and he and I met for the first time when uh, I asked um, him and L.A. Reid to do uh, the Whitney I'm Your Baby Tonight Whitney Houston uh, album. And, and they did <clears throat> such an amazing job. And <clears throat> they had had 19 number one R&B records, but never a number one pop record. And we knew that it was time for Whitney in the third album to show that she could sing pure urban songs or urban songs with a more urban base. They delivered big time. We got along so well that we launched together this incredible venture that he and L.A. shared known as LaFace Records. And so we went through Usher and TLC and Tony Braxton and Pink and uh, Outkast. I mean, an incredible run. So when you deal with his genius, uh, which it is. <clears throat> I had asked when Whitney was doing uh, Waiting for Exhale, please don't just have different artists. The temp score was Stephen Bishop, James Taylor. What you need in a movie like this is statements for African-American women so that the songs have got to move the storyline forward. And in short order, he came up with the first number one puppet that Mary J. Blige had, Not Gonna Cry, Sitting in My Room for Brandy, Shoop Shoop for Whitney Houston. I mean, one after another. So when he agreed to work on this project, you don't discuss it. You, Yes, I suggested, and Johnny and I went back and forth on the song choices, but once he had them, you know, you let him do his thing, and he did it in a remarkable way. You're, 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 you're kind of laughing here a little bit about about what were those discussions like about the song choices? Hey, I, do you want me to sing that song? <laughs> 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 well, because you get knee jerk, you know, you somebody, and you you've got your own mind about what you do and what how you do it and what have you. But and and it was it was over the years though. My career is. Is, is exactly like that. I've always had some, I don't know what to sing. I mean, you know, I sing stuff. But, <laughs> but the guidance that people give you and the, re and the revelation of these songs, they're new to me. I mean, it's, it's like you, when you listen to something that's absolutely new, that's the way I hear the song, and I go, I wonder if I can sing that. It's got some high notes in it, you know. <laughs> And, but that's what people like Clive, they, they have an understanding. How does he know that I can sing that? You know, you, you, you have no guarantee. And so he puts himself on the line a little bit by suggesting. Um, but so far, 100%. Thank you very much. <laughs> and I'd like to, uh, and I can't, I can't say enough about this gentleman who uh, lent us his, his studio. He has an incredible studio, recording studio. And uh, he, I, I never, <laughs> I'm so stupid. I never knew you played the guitar. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't, I thought it was a singer, right? Singers don't play guitar, singers. 
the thing as I know, the only thing. They can't do anything else. Um, but it was such a joy when he, we were in the studio, he came out with his guitar, and he sat down on the thing and just played this stuff. <laughs> it's crazy. Because I know his music and I was singing, and he, he has given himself uh, the greatest thing that anybody can do for another person. That's their friendship. He's given me friendship. Mm. And what a joy it is mm. to be with him on this stage. Mm. Tell me. So, you know, producers can do many things for, for artists. That's crazy. Yeah, yeah well, <laughs> but that, that, could, that could be part of it. Tell me, tell me a little bit about how Kenny helped you through the process of, of, of making this record. Well, he made me do it 150 times. And, you know, <laughs> <laughs> he, I found out later that he liked my singing. Very important. Um, <laughs> Step one. So naturally, he wanted it to be good because he, he likes my singing. Okay, we'll do it. We'll do it till the crows come in. And uh, <laughs> that's what we did. We did a lot of takes because he wanted certain qualities that he heard uh, that sounded like Johnny Mathis. And... Sometimes I go in the studio and, you know, you, your voice isn't quite what it should be or something and what have you, and you're struggling, and you don't sound like Johnny Mathis. You sound like somebody else. But he was wonderful. He, I would sing something, and I thought, I can't sing it any better. And he said, I know you can, but you can sing it differently. Oh, it's an English lesson, too. Okay. <laughs> Dramatically. <laughs> Was there was there a particular song that that you worked on where you knew at that point that this partnership would work? Was 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 there one song that sort of stood out where it's like, yep, this is this is going right? The all the songs become a blur after a while, and all you remember is whether you achieved what you were after at that song. Um, the minute I heard the playback on the first song that I did, where he kept suggesting that I do it over again and again and again and again and again, I was hooked. I said, I'll do it till the cars come in, you know, because he knows what he wants. Yeah. But I've been doing this for so many years with so many people who never gave their opinion and never said anything to me. And I was always on my own and I was just guessing. I'm a singer, I'm not, you know, I'm not a producer and what have you. So I, all I heard was what I thought was good. But they are sitting there listening to me as fans, yeah. uh, as well as being technicians and what have you. And so it was a joy to be with them. It was a joy to, to work that hard. And to get the results. Sometimes you work hard, you don't get the results. Mm. But this time, we did. Yeah. Tell, yeah. <laughs> Kenny, tell me, um, the first time you started listening back to these, to these tracks, what, did you, what were you hearing from, from him? Were you hearing something different, something better, something more than you might have imagined? When I listen to the track, yeah, before. yeah, as yeah, as you're listening, as you're starting to record, and you're listening to this stuff back and getting used to working with, with Johnny. The first moment that that Johnny started singing, and uh, we were just like, "That's Johnny Mathis." Mm -hmm. 
And that was the best thing about it. It's like, you know, it was Johnny Mathis. I mean, you, you have to worry about like, you know, now Johnny, you're, you're 80, 82. I was almost adding a year. 82. I think, there, I think there's a birthday coming. I think there's a birthday coming. So, so you got to wonder, you know, at, um, at at some point you're thinking, okay, is he going to have the same voice? Is he going to be, he, he looks the same, but is he going to sound the same? And um, and he walked in and he started singing and it was like, that's Johnny Mathis. It was this, this same beautiful voice that, that I grew up listening to. And I, and I almost, every day I stopped myself from saying, can you sing like Winter Wonderland? Just, uh, <laughs> just thinking it. Anyway. Um, and uh, I didn't I didn't ask him that. But the other the other part of it was that um, that Johnny. He was just like sunshine walking in, into a room, because hmm. as you can see, you, he's he's funny as hell. And he's and he's the, he is this person all the time. And you wouldn't expect that from chances are <laughs> uh, <clears throat> you just wouldn't expect. We're a silly grin. Yes, <laughs> that's the trick on huh? the silly grin. <laughs> Um, but he's so funny and, and such one of the loveliest people I've ever met in my life. He's, this is a person that, is, um, that God has blessed him with such a spirit. And, and there's a reason why he has that voice. Yeah. Because God gave it to him and, and God also gave him this beautiful spirit. And I wish everybody knew him the way that I know him because, you know, he just brings happiness to you when he walks in a room. Yeah. He, he, he's that guy. He's amazing. We we listened we listened to the you know the first track on the record Hallelujah, and I was surprised that you had not recorded that song previously because it seems to me of the many songs on the record that one was somehow made for you to sing. Well, that just goes to show you that <laughs> I keep reiterating it. I'm just a singer. I don't <laughs> know what I should sing. <laughs> 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 So these people that like these, they're so important in my life. They're so important. I'd still be singing, you know, I don't know what I'd be singing, but uh, I just am so excited about this new album because it brings me up to date, you know. <laughs> I mean, come on now, I'm 82 years old, you know, what's he gonna sing? <laughs> And that's sort of the way things are. I need help, and I've, I've had the best possible. With Clive Davis in my life, I mean, it has been the most wonderful thing. Every time I kind of have a little lull in my career, he calls me and said, how do you like to sing for, you know, everybody in the world that does what they do? And, uh, and I get a boost in my career. Very important. Thank you, Clive, for all those years. I've got a picture of Clive and I when we were both 12 or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> I've got it over there. But uh, as all of these things uh, um, you have to have uh, for career, there's so many singers that I've heard that are absolutely incredible but nobody's ever heard them. And it's just, it's not fair, of course, but that's the way things are. So I've had to have all of these people helping me along the way, suggesting me you know, for things to, to try, and then I'll try anything, you know. But they have knowledge 
that I don't have. And I understand that my dad beat it into my head years and years ago. My dad was my best pal in the world. He said, come on, son. This is what we're going to do. He was always that way, inclusive. He had seven kids. He and my mom worked hard all the time. But he still had time for me. He suggested after I was 12 years old, he said, son, why don't we take some voice lessons? And I said, dad, I can sing. He said, yeah, I know, but, uh, and anyway, that's kind of dad I had. He was just a, a wonderful human being, and I'm, uh, uh, fortunately, he, he lived long enough to uh, share in my success. He and my mom did, and uh, it's all because of these uh, people like this, because all I do is sing. Is there... Is there something in a song, when Kenny and, and, and Clive were picking out songs and, and going through them with you, is there something in a song, what does a song have to have you never, to catch your ear? You never know until you sing it. Until you sing it. I've turned down the Lord's Prayer, you know. Uh-huh. <laughs> but you, you have to sing it first. You have to sing it, yeah. And, uh, and sometimes I've... Fought like everybody else. I don't want to sing that song. That's a terrible song. And then I sing it, and it sounds fine. No, no, no problem. So I don't know. I'm a singer. Mm. I keep. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, yeah. So let me let me read you. Uh, I, I want to read you a quick quote. Um, the gentleman who wrote "You Raise Me Up." Now, "You Raise Me Up" has been done by many, many artists in many different languages. And he said, Johnny Mathis has one of those instantly recognizable voices of America that has endured and been loved for over half a century. I grew up listening to him and to think out of all the songs he could have chosen for this special album, that something I'd written would have this honor. Well, it's something for which we songwriters live. And God bless the songwriters. Oh, you should hear my efforts at writing songs. You would. Yeah. Clive. I'm going to take this moment, okay, a little unscheduled, spontaneous, because um, one of the songs uh, that I came up with, and obviously with my background with Whitney Houston, um, I was so enamored. At the time, she did Bodyguard. And when I first saw the film, there was only one song in it. And I said, you can't do that. People won't know why she needed a bodyguard just to have a straight-talking thriller. So I convinced Kevin Costner for more songs to be placed in the film. And this one song uh, I sent to Kevin after I had heard it from the composers, Uh, He loved it, and it plays an important role in the Bodyguard film. The composers are here, and because they're here today, first let me introduce you to Judd Friedman and Alan Rich, the composers. So, you know, sometimes I think there's there's one thing that that occasionally gets lost when talking about, about your career, and that is you were one of the, the first artists, the earliest artists, to embrace the, the concept of an album as a body of work, as opposed to, you know, it was very much a singles business in, in, in the 50s. And, and you embraced the idea of songs as a collection. Can, can you talk about that a little bit? 
I think it has a lot to do with, uh, first of all, uh, the gentleman who signed me to my contract, uh, George Avakin, uh, Columbia Records, uh, was uh, the head of jazz at the time. And uh, he was accustomed to presenting his artists uh, with an album of songs. And I, well, I didn't think I had enough pyrotechnics vocally mm. to warrant uh, making a single record. I thought, they, well, I don't know what I thought, but they, they had to be something that I didn't have. I thought that in order to succeed as a singer, I was going to have to have two, three, four songs that people would listen to uh, because most of the songs that I sang in those days were pretty mushy songs. You know, the, the words were kind of romantic and they weren't very good romantic. They turned out... Well, anyway, uh, <laughs> I needed I needed something that wasn't uh, jazz and it wasn't uh, whatever was going on at the time. Uh, so all the luck that I've had along the way uh, getting introduced to the right people, especially Columbia Records, mm. because they were they were interested in quality as opposed to uh, big hit records that they didn't have many. And uh, so they were willing to wait until whatever uh, possibilities I had as an artist, uh, wait until it happened. And there's so many things that have to be in place, you know, when you have a career. Uh, you just don't do it all. You, you know, you're, you're one little element of it. And, uh, and I'm so grateful to all of the people, and especially the gentleman who signed to me to my uh, record contract, uh, George Avakian, who is the gentlest, kindest, most wonderful, yeah. intelligent, Armenian man that I ever <laughs> met. Yeah. And, and, you, and you signed that first contract in 1956 with Columbia Records, and you're still with Columbia Records. Yes. Yeah, sure. um, um, what is having a home like that? In a sense, it's, first of all, it's rare. Uh, I've been told by somebody at the record company that my tenure with them has been the longest of any of the artists. And uh, so that's all I know. Yeah. And I'm ignorant in that respect. I don't know any other thing other than Columbia Records being my home. That's, and there's always been somebody there who has cared enough about me uh, and let's face it, it it's not just uh, your records. I haven't had a lot of hit records. I had a few, but but you have to have all the time, you know, to be thought of all the time by these people. But they've hung in there with me, and uh, that's what you have to have. You have to have all sorts of elements going along. And I've been very lucky. I've been healthy mm. uh, right from the beginning. I was involved in athletics, and uh, so that helped a lot. San Francisco I, State. I didn't uh, really plan it. It just that's what you do when you're a kid and you have no money. You just go and run around the track. <laughs> <laughs> huh. You know, when they're young, jazz musicians in particular are told to in some way, no matter what the instrument is, to find their voice. And, and I'm wondering, uh, because, you know, Kenny was talking about the moment that you started singing. It was, it was Johnny Mathis. It was that voice. How, how did you find your voice? My dad was a singer, 
but he had seven kids and he had to work all the time. He and my mom did. One day he came home with this piece pile of wood, it looked like, and we had this four room basement flat that we lived in. There were nine of us because we had two of our, our relatives staying with us at the time. So there were nine people in four rooms. And he sat down after fiddling around with this pile of wood for hours and hours and hours. And about two o'clock in the morning, we heard this song. And it was my dad playing the piano. So from that time on, I sat next to my dad and sang with him. And he taught me songs. And that was the most wonderful thing that ever happened to me. But my dad was my pal. He was like my best buddy in the world. We went fishing together. And, but, but he did that to all his kids. But I took. I mean, I, I really loved him. He was, he was a great guy. And he sang. He sang just like me. Yeah. I sound like my dad. So fair warning. We're going to ask for just a couple questions from the house here. Um, in, in, in a minute, but speaking of your father, you, you've talked often about, about the good fortune of growing up in San Francisco mm -hmm. in the 1950s and, and, and some of the great, particularly jazz artists that were coming through San Francisco at that time. Tell us about some of the artists that you saw when you were young. Well, my older brother, Clem, and older sister, Marguerite, uh, used to go to the jazz clubs. There were a couple. There was, uh, I used to go to... Uh, the Blackhawk, uh, which was a famous jazz club in San Francisco. And I had a buddy who played uh, saxophone. And uh, I would go to his rehearsals and sit there. I was, about, I was about 12, 13. And I'd listen and watch all of these famous people come through, people like Dizzy Gillespie, uh, Earl Garner, uh, Oscar Peterson, uh, Miles Davis, uh, on and on and on. And I knew these people from the time I was 12 and 13 years old. And when I finally started to sing and make records, and I see them on the tour, you know, and they, hey, I remember you, you shithead. <laughs> As I used to sit at the rehearsals and listen to them all uh, play their instruments and, and sing and what have you. I've been blessed in so many ways. Just good luck. Mm. I was so lucky. I was lucky to have a dad like my dad who took me to the Black Hawk and, and because you couldn't go there. I was a kid. You couldn't go there. They served booze. And the dad would take me and we'd sit in the back and listen to all these extraordinary people. Cyril Vaughan, Ella Fitzgerald mm. singing. Billy Eckstein became one of my best pals. He said, I heard you little shithead. You know? <laughs> When I was, and uh, nothing like a mentor. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, uh, the the gods have been so kind to me, and uh, and I'm still, you know, blessed to have uh, recording at my age. You know, still everybody sort of said, "Oh, that's nice." <laughs> so, and it sounds pretty good, I'll say. Do we have a question or two from the house? Yes, sir, right here. I told a friend of mine I was coming to see you today, and he said, make sure to ask you about your first manager, Helen Novet, how you met her. Helen was the co-owner of the Blackhawk, which was the most famous jazz club in San Francisco at the time. 
and really probably has remained that, because uh, there aren't any jazz clubs left anymore, I don't think. But uh, Helen Oga was, uh, she was Armenian, and uh, I had been kind of used to meeting people who spoke different languages, but uh, she uh, was uh, quite a character. She was part owner of the club, and she took me by the hand one time uh, when I was about 13 or 14 and said, kid, and she had a mouth on her, boy. She said, <laughs> she said uh, you're going to, uh, I'm going to, I'm going to make you a star. And she was so abrasive about her conversation <laughs> when she would talk to me. And then she had to meet my mom, and my mom said, John, you tell that woman, you're not her son, you're, you're. I said, Mom, Mom, that's just the way she is. So I had to go through just uh, trying to keep those two people in my life <laughs> together. And Beverly. And Beverly, how do you do? And Beverly, her daughter, well, Bev was on my side all the time. Bev likes me, yeah. Who else, yes, right there. Any class to write a book, you have so many fabulous stories. And That's a good question. Writing a book. I have been told so many times that if I don't do it, they'll get it wrong, you know. <laughs> and, uh, and so many things that people have imagined about me, uh, you know, just are the most far-fetched things you could ever think of. So, yeah, eventually I will... I mean, I've, I, sometimes I, I amaze myself that I, certain things you have to do in life. And some, it takes me a little bit longer than most people, I think. But I am going to, you have, there's a catalyst that you have to have whenever you do anything. You have to have the right people at the right time and the whole thing. And uh, I'm going to make it happen because I really want the book to, to, to tell about the reality of what I've gone through. Hmm. And it's, uh, it's, it's exciting and wonderful, but it's not <laughs> like some people think. <laughs> but along the way, I must say this, and I, I don't mind to be so loquacious, but uh, there's so many things that uh, are part of my life that, is, that are absolutely necessary if you're going to succeed. There's so many people who have so much talent and they've never been able to be recognized. And, uh, and I always keep that in the back of my mind, how lucky I am. But I've had so much help. I've had a lot of luck. I met people like Clive Davis. I met I mean, Babyface here has, has sat and listened to me screech in the morning, you know, because he's been right there helping me along. And uh, I couldn't ask for anyone more capable of doing what he does than him because he sings like an angel. He's got uh, clever lyrics. He, <laughs> to my amazement, played this guitar. I, <laughs> and probably some other things that I haven't, uh, you know, found out about him. But uh, that's what you have to have. If you're lucky enough to have it and it falls at the right time in your life, uh, good things will happen. Speaking of having the right team, to bring this back around to, to the album, when they first came to you with the idea of the great new American songbook, what, what, was, what was your first reaction? 
Well, you know, growing up as I did, listening to Nat Cole and so on, Elford Show and all these people like that, and I don't hear that music anymore. So, and I've been, <laughs> I discovered golf about 40 years ago, <laughs> and that's what I do. I, I come <laughs> off the road, you know, doing my concerts, and I run to the golf course. So I, I haven't heard any music on the radio because there's no radio anymore. Is it? You can't find stuff. So I just didn't know what I should have known. It would probably have helped me and, and saved me a lot of problems. But now I'm in tune and, and, and connected again, thanks to Clive Davis. I keep reminding him how connected he is at, at our age and have gone and started when we started, and we're still excited about what we're doing. Mm. Thank you, Clive. And thank you, Baby Fair. Clive, I'm going to... Um, yes. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you the last word. Um, if you could, put Johnny Mathis in context in, in, in American popular music. All right, I'll do that after I, I say... Um, spontaneously, that there are very few albums that one deigns to play each cut the way that we play today. Uh, in my career, I did it with each Whitney Houston album. I did it with Santana's Supernatural. And I did it with Rod Stewart's The Great American Songbook, originally. And to keep an audience attention from a rap point of view, to play each cut and to know that it's taking hold, um, you got to do it rarely. So that uh, in choosing to do it uh, today, we're doing it because we feel the album is so special. Um, it's not that it's going to come out and we're releasing single after single so that you um, and in speaking to you as an audience, uh, we're hoping that you're so taken uh, with this album, apart from your feeling from Johnny, because Johnny here is co-starring with the copyrights. Johnny here is uh, endorsing these copyrights, reinterpreting these copyrights to make them standards. And so from an attraction point of view, this album, Every song in this album is a wonderful song interpreted and reinterpreted through the work of Kenny and with Johnny. So we're very dependent on you to spread the word, whether it be through the web, whether it be any other way that a special, great traditional pop album, but a refreshing traditional pop album, a creative traditional pop album, a traditional pop album that has respect for new material that can grow into standards. And so, in summary, Johnny Mathis is at the top of the pantheon of all-time artists, without question. I mean, you find from a female point of view that the three, in my opinion, I've just had a, a documentary coming out actually um, uh, this weekend as well on my life. And I've had there these two gentlemen grace the premiere uh, the other night and it'll be available on Apple. And um, when asked 
being interviewed, who were the three greatest singers in your lifetime. Uh, they are to me Aretha Franklin, Barbara Streisand, and Whitney Houston. When you talk about male artists in no order, but showing with all of the great singers in a lifetime, there are three. There are Frank Sinatra, Tony Bennett, and the great Johnny Mathis. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, Clive Davis, Kenny Edmonds, and Johnny Mathis. Thank you, gentlemen. I'm still blown away by Clive Davis's power of recall. Every track, every artist he's ever worked with still seemingly at the tip of his fingers. The album is the result of classic record making in a way that really rarely happens anymore. So uh, first of all, I encourage you to listen to Johnny Mathis sings the great new American songbook. I would also encourage you to go back and listen to Johnny Mathis's earliest material. That is the finest example of the state of pop music in the late 1950s and very early 1960s. So that's your required listening for today. Now we're coming to you with new episodes every week. We're on all the social platforms, so let's keep the conversation going at Grammy Museum. If you're planning to visit Los Angeles, I do hope you'll visit us at the Grammy Museum. Our website, grammymuseum.org, has all the information on our activities, our programs, and our exhibits. And finally, a big thanks to the required listening team. Jason James, Justin Joseph, Kittrick Kearns, Jim Canelo, Lynn Sheridan, Miranda Moore, Callie Weissman, Jason Hoke, Chandler Mays, Nick Stumpf, and everyone at How Stuff Works. Until next time, I'm Scott Goldman.